0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here, and we're doing law for Virginia law enforcement officers. What do you need to know in Virginia to serve the public, to serve your community, to strengthen your agency and the community around you? We're talking about law, constitutional law, statutory law, new cases from the various courts of appeals, all that kind of good stuff. And today, we're going to be talking about informants and sources whether we're talking about doing traffic stops based upon information you hear from someone else or search warrants if i'm writing a search warrant there's two new cases that i want to talk about one from the fourth circuit court of appeals and one uh, here in virginia from uh, york county that both really focus on this issue and a while back at one of my trainings one of our students came up and said, "You know, hey, it would be great if you covered informants and talked about informants. And I think that's a great topic. Uh, it's actually something that I think a lot of law enforcement officers in Virginia don't think a lot about, because when you think about informants, you think about oh, that's something that you know narcotics does, they have informants or detectives, they have informants. But if you're a law enforcement officer, there's almost nothing that you do that isn't in some way or another based upon an informant. So I think it's really important that we talk about uh, the rules and how the courts judge the information you're getting, whether from a named citizen, another police officer, uh, a criminal, uh, you know, a, or somebody who's unknown to you, an anonymous tip, and so on. So, we're going to talk about that today. The special sessions, I mean, the, the regular session of the General Assembly is underway as well. And last week we talked about some of the new possible legislation. Um, there's certainly been a lot going on at the General Assembly. A lot of bills are going through the House. A lot of bills are going through the, the Senate. They haven't gotten to crossover yet where they're going to exchange bills back and forth. So I'm going to hold off on talking about some of those bills until we get to crossover. Um, it's a little premature to say, you know, hey, this bill is coming or this bill is, you know, dead. Um, the, for example, the qualified immunity bill got sent to the crime commission so it's you know it appeared to be dead on Friday but that's happened before and somebody's you know at the last minute snuck it back onto the docket Um, there's no you know they're not subject to FOIA at the General Assembly they don't have to give notice of the stuff that they do they can at the last minute put stuff in and then vote on it and you have no idea so I never count my chicken before they hatch with those guys but um, but we'll keep you updated as we go through so today we're going to talk about I'm going to talk about start up with talking about two cases that I think are really interesting uh, that came out this week from uh, the fourth circuit and from the court of appeals. The fourth circuit case is a case called us versus Haas, and it's a sex trafficking and child pornography case where the defendant was trying to uh, get someone to, to find a child for him to produce child pornography and ultimately for sexual acts. Um, he was trying to bring a child in from out of state and the individual that he was trying to solicit was somebody who uh, he had previously paid for for sex so this person who was engaged in prostitution ultimately goes to the police and agrees to cooperate with the police in trying to uh, have this guy you know brought in and held responsible for trying to hire a child for sex and in the process when she's getting signed up with the police you know she doesn't have a driver's license she's somebody who's engaging in prostitution she gets stopped in a traffic stop, and she gives her sister's identity. She lies about who she is, and uh, the police officer gives her a ticket or whatever under her sister's name, and she goes on her merry way. and And a couple of days later, she realizes that was probably a dumb thing to do. So she goes to her uh, FBI handler, the person who she's signed up with, who she's been working with, and she's like, "Hey, look, I got to let you know, I, I did something really stupid. I, you know, I gave my sister's name and." want to make it right and he's like well you need to go to the police department to fix that so she goes to the police department and she says hey i I lied about who i was and they get it fixed they get it figured out and she goes on to provide information to the agents enough information that they can get a search warrant for this guy haas's uh, computer they find evidence about the child pornography the solicitation and so on they arrest him and they convict him but he argues his complaint is that the agents, when they wrote the search warrant, never told the magistrate judge that this person they were using as an informant who was giving the information had made a false statement during the course of the investigation, that she had lied about her identity to a police officer. They also never run her criminal history, so they don't put her criminal history in the search warrant affidavit. They get the search warrant, it goes to court, uh, and the defendant moves to suppress, the trial court denies the motion, and the Fourth Circuit agrees that that was proper. They, they sustain the conviction. And when the Fourth Circuit looks at this case, uh, their analysis is, you know, one, okay, she made a false statement, but did she make a false statement that was related to this investigation? Or did she simply make a, a false statement uh, that was just, you know, something that was false at some time about something? um and the agent knew about it this may seem like sort of a lawyerly distinction but it's an important distinction right because you know how many of us at some time in our lives have lied about something right is the fact that we've lied about something once in the past relevant if we're being used as, as a basis to obtain a search warrant no i mean you know she lied to her mom about where she was she lied to the school about you know whether she, whether she was sick or not you know when she's trying to get out of school that kind of stuff i mean that One lie doesn't make somebody not credible. Um, It would have been different, I think, if she had made a false statement in the course of the investigation about what the um, uh, what the subject, you know, what what Mr. Haas, the the defendant in this case, had actually done, right? And there's you know cases from Virginia that say if a person makes a false statement to law enforcement about the topic of the investigation, about the subject of the investigation, that really should be disclosed in the search warrant. Hiding that uh, does become uh, problematic and does m- potentially make your search warrant invalid. So you want to be careful about that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the other thing about not including the criminal history, they said, well, you know, in this case, um, the, there was nothing in the criminal history that appeared to invalidate the agent's findings. It didn't appear that the agent deliberately misled the magistrate. The agent really hadn't run her criminal history at all. So he didn't know what her criminal history was and they didn't find it was a problem. Um, I, you know, again, I would caution against doing that. He, in, in general, you know, you're going to be running the criminal history on most of the people who are providing you information in a formal way. Um, but we're going to talk about in a second sort of informal informants. And uh, you, you're not necessarily required to run a criminal history on absolutely everybody who's giving you information, right? If you think about it, you're walking down the street and somebody runs up to you and says, you know, hey, that guy just uh you know stole something from this you know cvs and ran across the street you're not going to stop and run that person's criminal history before you go uh chasing down to find out who this person was who just stole this item so we'll talk about that in a second the other case that's interesting uh, on this topic is long versus commonwealth and long versus commonwealth is a case from york county this is a case from the court of appeals uh january 26th of this week and in this case, the defendant was importing drugs to Virginia and selling them. <clears throat> he didn't have a car of his own. He was using a car that belonged to his girlfriend and his girlfriend's mom did not like this. His girlfriend's mom knew that the girl was an addict, um, that this guy was using her car. Uh, she was, at some, she was ultimately she was arrested and the girlfriend was arrested and the defendant continued to drive her car around and use it to sell drugs. So this, the mom calls the police and says, Hey, look, there's this guy and he's involved in drugs and he's driving my garage car around and I don't want him driving the car. I paid for the car. It's really my car. It's really in my name. I want my car back. So the officer investigates. He looks up the car. He checks toll records and he looks at uh, toll camera uh, footage and he can see that the car is being driven on days that the girlfriend is in jail, is incarcerated, shouldn't be driving the car. So when the car... So so the mom at some point puts a GPS on the car, and she provides the GPS information to the officer, who then tracks it to a motel that is a motel well-known for drug activity. He calls a sheriff's deputy in the area and says, hey, there's this car here, it's involved in drugs, I'm asking you to uh, stop the vehicle. So the deputy sees some some, um, traffic violations, stops the vehicle, and ultimately discovers the drugs. In this case, there's two informant issues, right? The first informant issue is, is the mom's information reliable? And can the officers rely on the mom's information? But notice there's a second issue here. And that is that the officer who actually does the stop is a deputy, and he doesn't know any of this stuff. All he knows is that some investigator, some detective has called him and said, stop this vehicle. It's involved in drugs. And so there's two layers of informant information here that the court has to go through. Now the court says the in, the mom's information is reliable because the the investigator the detective is able to corroborate the information he's able to corroborate through toll records he's able to corroborate through video he's able to corroborate the GPS information because he can see that the GPS information is accurate when he actually sees the vehicle is there and he knows the motel where it went to is a motel that is really well known for drug activity but the the, the detective the investigator is not the one who makes the stop it's the deputy and the court Emphasizes here that, yeah, the deputy is relying on an informant as well. The deputy's informant is the detective. And so the question is can the deputy rely on the detective, especially when he doesn't have any of the detective's information? And there, the court relies on something called the collective knowledge doctrine. And what that says is a deputy or an officer who's making a traffic stop based on the direction of another officer can essentially, without knowing the information, rely on it because a reasonable officer would know it. In other words, the reasonable officer, detective, or the the investigator, um, his direction is imputed to the officer who's actually making the traffic stop. And We see this doctrine come up a lot. As long as the person who's calling for the traffic stop knows enough information, the person who's doing the traffic stop can reasonably rely on it without worrying about actually having that information uh, conveyed. But what these two cases really emphasize the different kinds of informants that you have, right? You have the criminal informant, right? The person who's engaged in a prostitution, who's providing information to police. You have the named citizen who wants to remain anonymous, but who's known, right? The mom. And you have other officers, right? And you also have anonymous tips, um, you have undercover officers, you have the suspect themselves, they're all informants. And they're informants whether you've signed them up or not. They're informants whether or not you're doing a criminal investigation that's, you know, a th- six-month-long grand jury investigation, or whether you're doing a traffic stop, or whether you're doing a stop on the street just based on upon what somebody has told you, something that you got through dispatch, or somebody you got through a citizen on the street saying something to you. All of that is, uh, is considered to be informant information. And in general, the courts break up informants first into three categories, right? Is the person anonymous? Do you have any idea who they are? Are they semi-anonymous? You know something about them. You've got their phone number or their name or you can see their face. Or they're non-anonymous. They're somebody who um, you know exactly who they are, like the mom in this case, right? Those categories are important because an anonymous tip is basically worthless information unless you can somehow corroborate it unless it's somehow predictive or information that only somebody uh, who is involved in the offense could possibly know right and 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 this is sort of intuitive right but there's some famous cases about this i mean you know uh, florida versus jail somebody just calling in and saying hey there's two guys standing in the street corner and one of them has a gun on them so police run over and they jump out and they grab the two guys sitting on the street corner and they search them and find a gun on one of the people and the court says, well, what reason was there to believe that that call was a, an accurate call, that that information was good information? It's just a call that anyone could make and say, there's two guys standing there and one of them has a gun. I mean, why is that reliable information? There's no reason to believe it. It could be made up information. And in the problem, of course, in jail is they don't do anything to uh, corroborate that information in that case. But... There are cases where anonymous information can become predictive, uh, and Illinois versus Gates is an example of this, where you know you get this information, this person is going to fly to this airport, get off this airplane, they're going to get into a rental car, they're not going to have any baggage, they're going to get into this rental car, they're going to drive from Florida all the way back to uh, Chicago. Um, that's really unusual behavior. So when police see this person get off this airplane, have no luggage, go over to rent a car, uh, you know, that that's that's information that only somebody who's involved in the offense could possibly know. And so that becomes predictive information, right? Then we take ourselves to semi-anonymous tips. Now, this is where we start to get some reliability. I know something about this person. That can hold them, where I can hold them responsible potentially for the information they provide. Maybe I don't know their full information. I don't have their full name, their address, their phone number, their social security number, all that kind of stuff. But I've got their phone number. They're calling in. They say, "Hey, this is Bob, and you know, I'm calling you because my uh, my neighbor is outside and he's waving a gun around. He's saying I'm going to kill somebody." Right. So I'm not going to sit here and vet this person and run their criminal history and do a background check on them before I drive out to this guy's house, to Bob's house and see what's going on with his neighbor. Right. I'm going to jump in my car and go and find out what's going on with his neighbor. So. Can Bob be held responsible? If if does Bob, would it be reasonable for Bob when he's calling in to think if I'm lying, if I'm quote unquote swatting my neighbor, could I potentially go to jail? Well, yeah, I've given you my name and you have my phone number and we have caller ID. We know what number you're calling from, what location or what address you're calling from, and that's what happens in California versus Navarette, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case where a person calls in and makes a report about a traffic offense. And the court says, is that an anonymous tip or is it a semi-anonymous tip? Well, the court says everybody knows nowadays if you call 911, you can be identified. And so it's reasonable for a person to, uh, it's reasonable to give some reliability to a person calling 911 to calling from an identified number because that makes them believe that they could be held responsible and that gives me some reliability, right? And again, an anonymous tipster, they have no responsibility. They can just drop a dime on somebody. They'll never be held responsible. And that should give us some pause, some suspicion about the information they're providing. If I meet a person face-to-face, right, that can give me some reliability. They're willing to tell me to my face the information. That's very much more reliable than an anonymous tip. <clears throat> something that I can use to hold them responsible to prosecute them. Then we have non-anonymous tips. <clears throat> now, like I said, it's, it's useful to break things down into sort of categories of threes, right? So we have anonymous tips, non, uh, semi-anonymous tips, and non-anonymous tips. Non-anonymous tips, where I know the person, generally speaking, breaks down, again, into three types of people. We've got other police officers. That's very reliable information. We've got citizens and victims of crime. Again, that's very reliable. And then we have criminals. Now, when it comes to other police officers, you can see that courts consider them so reliable, they're willing to give this sort of collective knowledge doctrine, right? You can take an action based upon another officer telling you, stop that car, it's involved in drugs, I want it to be stopped, and you don't even have to vet that information, right? The collective knowledge doctrine says that if that other officer has sufficient information to call for that stop, you can make that stop yourself based upon just your trust that the other person's information is good. Now, that information better be good, or you're both in big trouble, right? If that other officer doesn't have probable cause for the stop, a reason why to go sufficient for the stop, then both of you guys are going to be on the hook for making an unlawful stop. So, you know, be careful in applying that doctrine. You don't want to do that blithely. But uh, if that other officer has sufficient information, that's a lawful stop to make. Uh, citizens and victims, in from people who are known. Uh, citizens, people who are just regular old everyday citizens, that they're considered also to be very reliable. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Again, if somebody says, uh, you know, hey, uh, that guy just beat me up and robbed me. You can make an arrest based simply on that report. If you show up to, you know, a club and there's a guy who says, hey, that guy just punched me in the face. And you walk over to the guy and you say, hey, sir, can I talk to you? They just want to talk to you. There's a complaint that you might have assaulted somebody. And that guy says, hey, I read, you know, I look at YouTube and YouTube says, don't talk to the police ever. I'm not going to say anything. If the only information you have is from this one citizen who says that guy just punched me in the face, that's probable cause for an arrest, right? It may not be enough Uh, You know, you may want to do more investigation, uh, and it's certainly advisable to do more investigation. But legally speaking, a citizen giving you that information, a named citizen willing to tell you that to their face, uh, that's probable cause right there. And sometimes when we write search warrants, you'll see magistrates push back and say, I want to know why this person's reliable, right? You have that little box in the search warrant that says this person's reliability is such and such. And the courts have gone through many different factors that can make a person reliable as a named citizen um, or as a, as, a, as a victim of a crime. And the factors are sort of funny. If you look at them, they're old-timey factors. They're things like he has a job or she's a registered voter. She's, uh, you know, goes to, uh, she, um, we know her address. She's been living in the community for a long time. These are all things that you kind of think, well, how do they make them reliable? But it, what it does is it provides a person's ties to the community, and it means again that if they've lied, they're looking at getting arrested, and they can't just flee easily. They're going to—they're established in the community, and being arrested is going to be a big problem for them, right? So they can be held responsible. So if you're looking to provide that reliability to the magistrate, that's the kind of stuff that provides reliability according to the courts. Registered voter, um, lived in the community a long time, has a job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And again, it seems strange, but that's those are the kinds of things the court cares about. The big problem we run into is informants who are criminals, right? And that's the problem that in Haas, right? In Haas, the problem was uh, that the informant had a criminal history and provided a false statement. So, how do you provide reliability for a criminal informant? Well, generally speaking, right, you have criminal informants. The best thing you can do is look at their history. Do they have a history of providing reliable information? Uh, narcotics units oftentimes will do a reliability buys or reliability operations where they the whole point of the operation is to see does the informant give us something that we can actually act on and that is reliable if they say they can buy drugs from this somebody let's watch and see if they can actually go buy drugs from this somebody. oh they really can go buy drugs from this person they're not full of garbage uh, they can provide useful information so um, you can you can create reliable information by watching them and observing them and demonstrating that their information is accurate or you can look at their past you can say in the past they've given information reliably not just to me but to other officers and use that in your search warrant or use that in your articulation of probable cause or position to say based upon this person's history uh they are reliable they have given information that's really you know yielded successful arrests this many times or successful search warrants this many times uh, that kind of information is really useful remember though this is where you can also get in trouble because informants oftentimes are criminals and criminals oftentimes do things to serve themselves in a short-sighted sense that don't necessarily make sense in the long term for their um, for their future, right? And one of them is sometimes they, you know, if you put the, send them out on a control buy, they're going to steal drugs for themselves. Sometimes if you, uh, if they provide information to the police, they're not going to provide good information. They're going to provide something that's bad information. Maybe they got the information wrong, or maybe they're setting somebody up because they want to, you know, get revenge on somebody and they know this person will get arrested by the police if they provide this information. Now, does that make them completely unusable? in all future cases well that's going to depend upon the, the information that they provided you right if they provided good information that's led to seizures of drugs in 30 cases and then one day they give you information and there's no drugs right does that mean they're no good anymore well no maybe the drugs got used or they went somewhere else or they heard the wrong thing or whatever but you do need to document that right i mean it's just like a canine if you're if you've got a canine Uh, you're going to keep good records of every instance in which the the dog finds drugs and every instance in which the dog doesn't find drugs. The fact that the dog doesn't find drugs doesn't mean, you know, the dog gives you an indication of drugs, but there's no drugs in the car, doesn't mean that the dog's wrong. It just means the information didn't pan out. And you still need to document that and provide that information so that when the magistrate's making a determination of probable cause or you're making a decision based upon a belief that there's probable cause, you're doing so, not hiding something. Saying, "Look, I know this person provided information that was good on 30 occasions, and not good on two occasions." Does that mean there wasn't probable cause? Of course not. It just means that I'm, you know, we're we're being honest. We're being open about the information. If the person's lied to you before and uh, stolen drugs before from you, for example, well, that's a little more problematic. If they've actively lied. So it doesn't mean that you can't rely on them in the future, but it does mean you're going to have to corroborate what they provide. People who've lied before do nevertheless tell the truth in the future potentially, but it, we are going to be skeptical and we're going to have to corroborate their information and demonstrate that corroboration in a search warrant or demonstrate it in, you know, in our, in our police report. Why did this person provide me information? Why did I, why did I continue to use their information even though they lied to me before? well, they said uh, that this person was selling drugs so this time I put them on the phone and I had a I made a record, recorded phone call and in the recorded phone call the suspect confirmed that he was making drug a drug deal and then I watched the suspect and did surveillance and his behavior was you know consistent with drug dealing and he went to this motel where no drug dealing happens and he met with another person who I know is a drug dealer and so on and so forth so you know I corroborated the information that's really important right two things that um, can also corroborate a criminal informant, if they have no history and you can't do a reliability by, is to go about trying to corroborate that person's information. Try to see if you can figure out, do they, are they providing you information that only somebody who's engaged in this criminal behavior would know? Or the other one that you sometimes hear is they made a statement against penal interest. I would be very skeptical of this one. This one is a tough one to apply properly. You know, if you arrest somebody and they've got drugs on them, you arrest somebody and they've got, um, you know, they've got uh, 200 grams of fentanyl in a bag in their passenger seat, right? What are they going to say? They're going to say, that's not mine. That belongs to somebody else. Is that reliable? Is that something that you should rely on? Their statement, oh, no, that's not mine. That belongs to Bob. Bob's a drug dealer. I'm just holding this bag for Bob. Bob asked me to hold this bag for him. He paid me $100 to hold this bag for him, and he's going to come back for it tomorrow. What's, what's that guy doing? Is that a statement against penal interest? No, that guy's just trying to shift responsibility onto somebody else. Now, if you stop this guy and he's got 200 grams of fentanyl and he says, okay, look, you know, that's part of, uh, you know, a kilogram of fentanyl that I've got. I've got a kilogram back at the hotel. This is 200 grams of it. The rest of it's back at the hotel. It's back with my friend, Bob, who I'm dealing with. Um, I've been dealing fentanyl for, you know, four months now, blah, 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 blah. Is that a statement against penal interest? Yeah. Why is that different? because he's making his situation worse. He is telling you something you didn't already know and he's giving you information that's making his situation worse, that's getting him in more trouble. Is that reliable? Yeah, because people don't tend to uh, admit to stuff that you don't have information about. They don't tend to dig their hole deeper and make the situation worse unless that information is accurate. Um, Is it definitely true? No. But is a probable cause that it's true? Yeah, there's probable cause, right? Uh, That's at least reliable. Um, And again, we're talking about informants being used not just for search warrants, but for maybe street arrests or traffic stops or all those different types of situations. What I would close with today, though, is some cautionary information about using informants. You know, we use informants a lot. We have to use informants as, as, as law enforcement officers because there's no way you can do this job without getting information from other people. Again, whether they're a citizen on the street, a fellow police officer, or a criminal, you've got to get information from other people to do this job. Where you get in trouble, I think, with informants in a lot of times without knowing about it, right, without being, you know, trouble that you uh, you have no idea that you're in deep, you have no idea that you have trouble, you have no idea that you've brought uh, misery on yourself and your fellow officers. Is where somebody you maybe you again you arrest some guy and he's got fentanyl he's got meth and he says hey I can help you out I can get you this big drug dealer and you think oh I know that guy he's a big drug dealer boy it would sure would be great if I could uh, get enough information to um, to arrest him and you know uh, get you know catch him when he's dealing what a great case that would be um, that would eliminate somebody who's a significant public safety threat and you get all excited about it, and you get excited about using this informant, and you maybe don't do the due diligence that you ought to about, has this person provided information before, and is this person, in fact, uh, too good to be true? Remember, when somebody's a confidential informant and they're getting signed up, that means something, they're confidential, right? Which means it's confidential from other police officers as well in other words you may not just be able to look up in your local RMS records management system and see that this person has been an informant before maybe they worked for your agency before confidentially and you wanna ask why aren't they working now well maybe they got cut loose because maybe they were full of garbage maybe they spun somebody maybe they uh, you know took off they stole some money or they just lied provided false information or just weren't reliable maybe they've worked for another agency nearby you before and I, sug- I strongly suggest if you've got somebody who comes in and they seem a little too good to be true, you know, especially if you're a patrol officer or you're, you're a young narcotics officer, a young young detective, go out and do your due diligence and vet this person with somebody else. It may feel like I'm you know I'm being too cautious. You may feel like, hey, I want to use this person myself, I'm excited. Um, but it's really worth it. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody come in and officers get really excited. When I started, I would get really excited about uh, you know a new informant coming in, and some old timer would come in and be like, "Yeah, don't use that guy, he's not trustworthy." And eventually in my career, I did get to the point where you know I would hear somebody would come in and say, "Hey, we got this guy." And and, and sometimes I would hear the person I'd go, "Wait, who is it again?" "Oh, no, 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 no." No, 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 no. You want to stay right away from that person. That person's going to is going to spin you. They're, you know, they're not they're not trustworthy. Don't don't mess with them. Um, and And remember, this is a problem because, you know, we talked about that collective knowledge doctrine in the beginning that, um, you know, in the case from uh, York County from this week, uh, which is uh, Long versus Commonwealth remember collective knowledge cuts both ways and ultimately if the defendant finds out or if the defense finds out that this person has a history of being an informant and some of their history isn't so good you're expected to know that too just because you didn't subjectively know about it remember collective knowledge cuts both ways and you can end up in a lot of trouble If you're using somebody that your agency should have known or should have let you know, uh, wasn't reliable, had provided false information, um, and you can watch a a perfectly good investigation with a perfectly good, ostensibly good arrest fall apart uh, based upon something that might have happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago with this informant that nobody told you about. So just some cautionary t- information about informants. Um, that's a little introduction to using informants. Obviously, using informants is very complicated, and you need to stick to your agency's procedures and so on. Um, and, and I definitely encourage you to find out what your directives and procedures are with handling informants uh, and so on. So, But nevertheless, hope that was useful for you guys today. That's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud. If there's another podcast app that you use and you want to get on that app, let me know and I'll try to get on that app and try to make it useful for you. But definitely feel free to share it, spread it out. This is episode 40. We've done 40 episodes, can you believe it? That's awesome. Uh, Thanks for all the feedback. Thanks for the ideas. Um, But that's all from me. That's all from Big E for today. Stay safe and don't get captured.